Go ahead and have a seat. You know, it's not often that we, well, it is often actually, we sing sermons in our worship set, but that song is especially meaty, and I love it. So thank you, worship team, for introducing that to us. Hey, thank you to everyone who was here last night uh, making the Trunk or Tree outreach a success. Uh, we believe we have over 400 uh, adults and kids through the through the event last night. So it was a great opportunity uh, to just touch base with our community, uh, to try to uh, give them an invite card to church and just say thank you for being here. Um, so praise the Lord for that. We're praying for those folks. If you're here from that event, um, glad you're here. Welcome. Uh, also, thank you to those of you who were caring for the Davis family this past week. You know, it's always sweet uh, to hear about the body of Christ just rising up and meeting needs within the body. And that's exactly what happened. Um, as soon as Mark and Angel's son passed, uh, so many people were reaching out. How can we be a blessing? How can we help? Are there any needs? Um, and so praise God for his work in you. Um, it's exciting to see that happening. Please continue to keep Mark and Angel and their family in your prayers uh, at this time, too. Well, if you are new, um, welcome. My name is Nick Lees, and I have the privilege of opening up God's Word with you this morning. And we are in the midst of a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. And we are calling this part of our study Kingdom Opposition. Uh, because we're at the point in the Gospels where things are heating up uh, in the opposition of the Pharisees against Jesus. And so what you're going to see today is they are outspoken, and they are beginning to challenge him directly. So today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12. Why don't you go ahead and turn there in your Bible. Uh, That's page 476, if you grabbed one of the blue ones on your way in. And we're going to read, um, starting in verse 1, all the way through verse 21 today. So I'll give you a second to turn there, and then I'll read it aloud for us. All right, here we go. Here's what the word of the Lord says. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests and the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out, and they conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. 
I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. There's a lot going on in this section of Scripture that we're unpacking today. You can see that Jesus is on the move, and clearly the Pharisees have a bone to pick with him. They are upset. Things are so heated up that we see that they begin to conspire against him how they might kill him. Do you ever wonder, why in the world do the Pharisees have such a problem with Jesus? Why are they so opposed to him? Well, it all comes back to the issue of authority. That's the underlying issue behind the tensions of what we're seeing here between Jesus and the religious leaders. It's the question, who has authority? Who has authority? And the Pharisees believe they do. Remember, they are the uh, experts at the Old Testament. And they are the ones who have helped create the religious laws that are on top of the Old Testament. And so they believe we are the ones with authority. But Jesus, on the other hand has said and demonstrated that he has all authority. In fact, the crowds had seen it firsthand. They'd they'd heard it in the Sermon on the Mount. They'd recognized it in the miracles that Jesus performed. And now they're having the opportunity to see it in Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees. And so as we study this text today, as we go through and discuss it, if there's one thing that you take away, here's what I would like for you to take away. The big idea that Jesus has all authority. Jesus has all authority, and he is the one you should follow. He is the one you should follow. And so in the time we have left, I'm going to try to give you multiple reasons why you ought to follow Christ. But in order to do that, you really got to understand the cultural and religious backdrop for what's happening here. And so I want to try to give you that this morning. Now, you may have noticed, as you read, or as I read aloud, that there were some phrases that came up multiple times in the text. Two in particular that I want to draw your attention to. The first was the idea of what is or is not lawful. Right? So we heard, is it lawful or it is not lawful multiple times, actually four times to be exact. Right? That came up four different times. The next phrase that came up was on the Sabbath. And that one showed up seven times. And that, knowing these two phrases are repeated throughout the, the passage, gives us the context for what's going on here. First, all of this is happening on the Sabbath, which is the Jewish day of rest. And secondly, the Pharisees are upset that Jesus appears to be breaking the rules about what's permissible on the Sabbath. They think he's a lawbreaker. They think that they're in the right, and Jesus needs to get in line with their interpretation of the law. You see, again, they've built this extensive structure of rules and regulations on top of God's word. Contrast that with what Jesus taught. If you were here last week when Pastor Mark was teaching, he pointed out that Jesus said to those who are weary and heavy laden, he said, come to me and I will give you rest. See, one of the things that would happen is the people were burdened by all of the laws that they were expected to obey. They were impossible to keep. And Jesus actually later condemns the Pharisees for doing that. I'm going to give you a sneak peek of that. It's in Matthew 23, verse 4. Here's what he says about the Pharisees. It says, They tie up heavy burdens, 
hard to bear. And then they put them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. The Pharisees were known for creating all of these extra laws for how to be righteous. You got to do all of these things if you want to be righteous in God's sight. And you know, perhaps that started out of a good desire, right? It's a good thing to want to be righteous. But what it led to was religious hypocrisy, religious judgmentalism. And it became a crushing burden to the people of that day. And you need to know that the laws that the Pharisees created about the Sabbath were especially obnoxious. They had 39 different types of work that you could not do on the Sabbath. And underneath those 39 different types of work were all of these other rules about how not to violate those 39 types of work. So, for an example, uh, one of the rules was there was a maximum distance that you could walk on the Sabbath. If you went any further than that, you have now entered into working and you're no longer resting and you're a lawbreaker. That just gives you an idea of how overwhelming it would have been uh, to be under these rules. Do you see what they're doing? They are taking their interpretation of the scriptures and they're elevating it to the same authority as God's word. Right? This is their understanding of how to be righteous. And they're saying, this is what you must do in order to be righteous. They have now put themselves on par with the authority of God's word. Well, the Sabbath was very important for the Israelites. It was part of who they were as God's chosen people. There are two things that really set apart God's chosen people in the scriptures. Uh, One was the Sabbath, keeping the, the Sabbath, the day of rest. And the other was circumcision. Both of those were designators that you are a part of God's chosen people. In fact, we hear God uh, express this to Moses when he's on Mount Sinai, when he's giving Moses the Ten Commandments. Let me share with you from Exodus 31 so you can see just how important the Sabbath was to these people. Here's what God says to Moses. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. That's pretty serious. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. That begins to help you understand just how important the Sabbath was to the people of Israel. This was given to them by God through Moses as part of the Ten Commandments. Keeping the Sabbath was incredibly important to them. To fail to do that was a big deal, as you heard there. It brought death upon you. But what the Pharisees are failing to understand in these interactions with Jesus is that one who is greater than them, has greater authority than them, is here. Someone who has the authority to 
properly and accurately interpret God's commands. And so our first reason today for following Christ comes out of this. Follow him because Jesus has greater authority. Jesus has greater authority. So the the first set of interactions here is the Pharisees arguing with Jesus. They are upset about how his disciples have conducted themselves in the field on the Sabbath. Right? In the Pharisees' eyes, his disciples have violated the rules. They have done work that they should not have done. You really begin to get the impression that they were watching. They were waiting for Jesus and his disciples to do something questionable so they could catch him. Why else would they have known that Jesus and his disciples were in that field on the Sabbath day? They do notice. And they go to Jesus, the teacher, and they they say, hey, you need to do something about this, right? What do they say? They say, look, which is the same word for behold. That's a word we've heard quite a bit lately. Behold. And I find it ironic that what the Pharisees are focused on beholding is their rules, their regulations. That's That's what their focus is on. Meanwhile, we see, if you go down to verse 18, God wants us to behold his servant. We've heard that in the suffering servant songs of Isaiah over the past few months. The Pharisees are missing God's servant because they're too busy beholding their own laws. They, They miss the point. And Jesus' response here is telling. He's trying to get them to wake up and realize who he is. And the way that he does that is by asking them two questions and then making two statements about his identity. Both of the questions begin with, have you not read? Have you not read? That's meant to point the Pharisees back to the scriptures. Don't you know the Old Testament scriptures? You have to imagine that was a bit of a salty question for the Pharisees to receive. Remember who they are. They are the experts of the Old Testament scriptures. And so Jesus is clearly not afraid to go toe-to-toe with them. And the reason why he's asking these questions is he wants them to consider who has authority here. In this interaction, who is the greater authority? Who has the right to interpret God's word? And the Pharisees think it's them. But Jesus is going to show them it's, it's him. It's not them. And so in the first example, David is uh, violating the law to care for his hungry men. And so he eats the bread of the presence, which was not for the men of the army. It was for the priests. The priests were the only ones who were supposed to eat, eat of that. And yet David takes it for his soldiers, and he's not condemned for it. And Jesus brings up this example to imply that he has as much or greater authority than David did. Right? If, if David could violate the law and it was seen as permissible in his circumstances, then Jesus, who was of greater authority, can do what he did with his disciples in the field. This is a claim to greater authority. The second example is pointing out that the priests in the temple technically violate the Sabbath every week. The Sabbath was the busiest day of the week for the priests. They had more sacrifices on that day than any other day of the week. And so they're working on the Sabbath. And yet they're guiltless because what they're doing was in service to the temple. The temple is more important, in this case, than the Sabbath regulations because the temple has greater authority. The temple is the place where the people worshiped God. The temple was the place where God dwelt with his people. It's very important in the, in the nation of Israel's eyes, which is what makes Jesus' next statement so incredible. I tell you, 
something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is now claiming that he has a greater authority than even the temple, the dwelling place of God with his people, this, this building that was a symbol of the nation of Israel as God's chosen people. Jesus has got greater authority than that. That's a big claim. That is quite the claim to authority. Well, then he goes on to rebuke the Pharisees in verse 7. And the way that he does that is by going back to the Old Testament to Hosea 6, verse 6. And he says, look, you guys don't get this. You don't understand it. If you've been here for the earlier parts of our study of Matthew, you know that this is not the first time Jesus has brought this particular passage up with the Pharisees. Just a couple of chapters earlier in Matthew 9, uh, Jesus was sitting at dinner with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees observed that. Again, they were watching him. And they said to his disciples, why does your master dine with tax collectors and sinners? They don't go to Jesus at that point. They go to his disciples. But Jesus responds to them. And here's what he said in Matthew 9, 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. But the Pharisees aren't getting it. They don't understand that God's desire, first and foremost, is for a people who worship him with their whole heart. God's main desire is to have a people who are sold out for him, not just people who check off the box of religious rules and regulations. A people that worship him from their hearts will become a merciful people, a people who show compassion on those in need, which is far more important to God than simply a a people that can follow the rules. Or follow the regulations. And so Jesus is essentially saying to the Pharisees, look, you're not getting it. You're missing the point of the scriptures. You are using them for your own purposes to justify yourselves by your works. And what he's pointing out here is, I have greater authority than King David. I have greater authority than the temple. The mission of the kingdom that I on that I am on has greater authority, and you should listen to and follow me. That's what's happening here in these interactions. And he goes on to make two extraordinary claims about his identity. If you look at verse 8, the first thing he brings up is that he is the son of man. It's not the first time he's given himself that title. He brought it up earlier in Matthew 9 where he healed the paralytic. And that's a title that, that comes from the Old Testament book of Daniel. And back in Daniel, that is a title that denotes authority. The Son of Man is given dominion. He's given glory. He's given a kingdom that people from every uh, people group and nation and language will bow down to and serve. The Son of Man is given a kingdom that never passes away. Which fits so perfectly with what we've learned this year about Jesus. From the Gospel of Matthew and from Micah and from Isaiah. That's who Jesus is. That's who he's claiming to be. So realize what's happening here as Jesus is interacting with these religious leaders. He's telling them, point blank, I am the Messiah. I am the one you've been waiting for. I am the one with greater authority. And as the Son of Man, I have the right to interpret the laws because I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. These things find their place in me. And so the Pharisees have no right to say, you're in the wrong, that you're breaking the law, because Jesus has the greater authority. 
He is the one who truly understands God's plan and his purposes for the Sabbath. Now, I think that it's hard for us as, as modern uh, Christians to really understand the Sabbath. It, we don't talk about it a whole lot. And so I want to share a quote with you that I think maybe will help drive this home about how significant this claim is of Jesus. It's a quote from R.T. France. Here's what he says. In that case, this concluding pronouncement is Christologically even more daring than what has preceded it in verses 3 through 6. He's talking about the statement that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying that this is a big deal. Not only is the Son of Man greater than David in the temple, but he is the Lord of the institution, which is traced back in the Old Testament to God's direct command. That God is the one in Genesis 2 who we read about. He created the earth and the heavens in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. That finds its origin in God's direct command. Enshrined in the Decalogue, which is the Ten Commandments, which is the central codification of God's requirements for his people and described by God as my Sabbath. All of that means that what Jesus is claiming, he's greater than all of those things. He's, he's making an astounding claim. Here's how the author finishes up his comments. He says, against that background, to speak of humanity in general as Lord of the Sabbath would be unthinkable. To speak of an individual human being as such is to make the most extraordinary claim to an authority on par with that of God himself. Jesus is making the most extraordinary claim right here. He is claiming to have the authority of God. That is a very big deal. He wants the Pharisees to know that he is at the same level of authority as God. And he's showing them that they need to listen to him. They need to follow him. They need to submit to his authority. Unfortunately, we can see what their response is. We, we know that that's not how they respond in verse 14. But before we go further in the text, maybe it's appropriate to just push pause for a second and to say, well, what about you? What is your response to the authority of Jesus, to his identity? Are you willing to bow the knee and, and to follow him? And to say, he, he does have the right to call the shots in my life. He does have the authority to command my allegiance. That's ultimately what this is about. He's worthy of your worship. He's worthy of being followed. And that's something each one of us must wrestle with this morning. Well, let's keep moving. Let's go to the next section. This section is a little bit uh, more clear in its message, at least for you know, us being so far removed culturally from, from their day and age. You notice in verses 9 through 14 that the scene changes. Jesus is no longer with his disciples in the fields, but now he's in their synagogue. And notice that it says their synagogue, referring to the Pharisees. This is like where they hang out. This is the place of, of their supposed authority. They're the authorities in the synagogue. But look what happens next in this interaction with the man with the withered hand. The Pharisees bring this up. They point him out and they say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And in case we're wondering, well, why, is, why are they asking that? Matthew gives us a helpful note. So that they might accuse him. Right? They're, not, they're not after information. They want to look for a, a reason to say, nope, you have undermined God's law and you are wrong. Right? They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to trap him. 
Well, how does Jesus respond? Typical Jesus, he responds with a question, just like he did earlier. It's a question that's bringing up an argument from lesser to greater. And his point here is that many of them would make an exception. If their animal fell into a pit or was in distress on the Sabbath, there was exceptions to allow them to try to help that animal so that it wouldn't die, so they wouldn't have a loss. And he says, look, if you're willing to do that, to make exceptions for an animal, how much more ought you to do that for a human being, someone who's made in God's image? And so the greater point he gets to in verse 12 is, so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. That is Jesus' authoritative interpretation of God's commands. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was established as a day of rest, a day of worship of the Lord, a day where you could do good to one another and for one another. But the Pharisees have turned the Sabbath into this obnoxious day of having to keep the rules and, and looking to catch you and try to get you and say, you failed. And we see that in the way that they treat Jesus here. They're not doing good to others. They're looking out for ways to say, look, you're in the wrong, and it's time to own up to it. Maybe you begin to understand why the people would have been weary and heavy laden, if that's how their religious leaders are teaching them. And imagine if our pastor team followed you around 24-7 and was watching, trying to catch you in sin Right, so you're in the midst of an argument with someone, and out pops Pastor Chris. Ha! Gotcha! Right, or you're driving down I-80, and maybe you're going, you know, 70 miles an hour, and all of a sudden your phone starts ringing, and you look down, and that's Pastor Brent calling me. You pick up the phone, and he says, hey, uh, I'm following you on I-80, and I notice you're going over the speed limit here. Right, that'd be a little creepy, wouldn't it? Yeah, I'd get old real fast. In, in those scenarios, we're not looking out for your good. We're just trying to catch you in your sin, trying to call you out on it, weigh you down. And Jesus is declaring here to the Pharisees that he has the greater authority. He has the right to interpret the law correctly. He ultimately understands God's intention behind the law, and he's able to speak about it in the appropriate manner. God's plan for the Sabbath was to do good for his people. And if you even just think back to last week, to Matthew 11, right, Jesus said, come to me and find rest. He is the embodiment of everything that we are supposed to find in the Sabbath. Now, a larger concept that, that we don't have time to go into today is that Jesus is actually our Sabbath rest. That when he came, he fulfilled the law perfectly, including the Sabbath. And now he offers us rest when we come to him. That's why we're able to have rest at any time. Because we can yoke ourselves to Jesus. We can rest in him. He has obeyed God perfectly. And how much better for us to be under the authority of one who perfectly understands God's word and perfectly interprets God's word and is the fulfillment of God's word. That's who Jesus is, and that's how he lived. Which brings us to our second reason to follow Christ. Jesus applies the scriptures righteously. Follow him because Jesus applies the scriptures righteously. You see, rather than being out to get you, ah, got you in your sin, Jesus is doing good to others. He is here to show mercy 
And specifically, we know that he came to rescue and redeem sinners. That he came to save us from our brokenness. And so whether it's the physical healing, like we saw with the man with the withered hand, or the far more important spiritual forgiveness that he offers for our sin, Jesus has come to provide rest to those who are weary and heavy laden. He's come to provide a way for you to be reunited with your creator. And as he has pointed out, compassion is greater than mere religious rituals. God is not after simply a people who follow the rules. Check the boxes. He wants a people who will forsake everything to follow him, who count the cost of worship, who are willing to align themselves with his kingdom. He wants your allegiance to turn from rebellion and to follow him. That's the message we've heard over and over and over again in the Gospel of Matthew. And in God's kingdom, which we've just heard from Jesus, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So what Jesus does is he takes the the Pharisees' incredibly detailed rules that, that people were supposed to keep, and he just blows it wide open. The Pharisees had that extensive list of laws and rules so that people didn't have to think. They would just say, okay, well, here's what the law says. Here's what I've got to do. And Jesus says, no, here's the, here's the interpretation. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It's a super broad statement. That's what you're to do. Do good on the Sabbath, which leads to the question, well, how do I know what to do? What is good? And the answer to that is found in here. Know what God wants. Study his word. As you study the teachings of scripture, then you know how to do good in each situation. That's how we do good on the Sabbath. It's a big difference from the Pharisees. They're weighing you down with their laws. They're trying to catch you in your disobedience. But Jesus is freeing you up to do good to others. He says, know God's will, know his word, and then get busy doing it. Live it out. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd rather follow Jesus than the, the burdensome law of the Pharisees. Jesus is a much better master, and he is the greater authority. As Christians, we should each strive to follow Christ's example. And so you really need to be thinking about, well, what would it look like for me to be a, a man or a woman of God's word who then allows it to influence my life so that I am seeking to do good to others. What if that was your focus? What if that's what you dedicated your life towards? I want to know God's word, and I want to allow it to change me in such a way that I do good to others as I worship the Lord. That would have a tremendous impact on your life, on the lives of those around you, on our community. Right? Let's think about if not just our church was doing that, but everyone who professes to follow Christ is doing this. What a, what a major impact that would have on our world. And we've got to realize there are going to be some opportunities this very week to do good to others. Our nation's in a little bit of turmoil right now. Right? Two days from now is when voting is taking place. And, and frankly, our leadership all the way down to our citizens have been very unkind. They're not doing good to one another. They're doing evil. With their speech, they're insulting, they're slandering, there's gossip. With their actions, there's physical harm, damage to property. There's all sorts of stuff happening in our nation that has nothing to do with doing good to one another. So what if Christians were different? 
What if Christians were busy seeking to do good to others? Even, or maybe we should say especially, to those who have different views than you. Or someone's political view should have nothing to do with whether you're willing to do good to them. They are a human made in God's image. And so how dare we use our words or our actions to insult or slander or to tear down or to cause harm or do evil to someone made in God's image? Rather, as Christians, we ought to be using our words and our, and our actions and our thoughts even to build up, to speak words of life, to encourage them, pray for them, serve them. Whether that's in person or on social media, wherever it may be. And my hope is that every single one of you would exercise your right to vote. Right? That's a blessing in our nation. That's a privilege. Don't waste it. But more importantly than that, I hope that before and after you vote, you're looking for ways to do good to those who are around you. That you're seeking to be a blessing to the people God has put in your sphere of influence. That's who he's called us to be. My hope is that each one of us would be a student of the word. So that when situations arise, maybe they're tense situations, we would say, okay, I know what to do here because I know what God wants of me. I know how he'd want me to respond. Here's what it looks like to do good in this situation. Now going back uh, to the scriptures, back to that day and age, we see, unfortunately, that the Pharisees weren't willing to listen to Jesus. They weren't willing to follow him. They're not interested in recognizing his authority. And the result is that they go out and they conspire how to kill him. They're driven to a rage. They understand the claims that he's making. They realize that he is claiming to be an authority on par with God. And and when we get to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to see these kind of things brought up against Jesus during his arrest and his trial. He claimed this. This is who he says he is. And that's what they'll use against him as they seek to kill him. And what I find interesting is Jesus' response to the Pharisees. If you look at verse 15, here's what he does. It says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Or Jesus knows they're angry. He knows that his message is divisive. He has come to call people to repent, which implies that you're sinners and that you need a Savior, that you need to change. It's a, it's a divisive message. He's told them that he's an authority on par with God, right? He knows that they're angry but he doesn't keep the conflict going. He, he withdrew from there. And Matthew goes on to link Jesus' actions with the Old Testament prophecies of Isaiah. This is exactly what Isaiah said the suffering servant would be like, that he would be one who was rejected and despised, one who was killed, which is why he makes the point in verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then he goes on to quote Isaiah 42, which is one of the suffering servant songs that we studied just a month and a half ago. And what I find neat about this is I did not line this up intentionally that way. Uh, when I planned to do the suffering servant songs for four weeks, I didn't realize we'd come back to Matthew and hear them brought up again, which is just really neat to see how God's word works. So this suffering servant song in Isaiah 42 brings us to our final reason to follow Christ for today. Follow him because Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah. 
He's the chosen one of God through whom God is rescuing and redeeming his people to himself. He is the one who came willingly and lived in a manner that pleased the Lord and then died in our place for the forgiveness of our sins. And while he was here, he proclaimed the justice of God. And when we studied this passage back in September, here's how we defined God's justice. God's justice is his righteous will and ways that leads to life. It's his righteous will and ways that leads to life. It's providing an order to our world that cares for all. It's the idea that there is a proper way for everyone and everything in our world to function. It's the way that God designed it to function. And so Jesus came to put things aright. Justice is what occurs when we are all functioning according to God's design. That's when uh, human flourishing happens. That's what true life looks like. That's what brings the glory of God. When each one of us is doing exactly what God has called us to do. And Jesus is the one who came to proclaim that justice to the Gentiles, to the nations. This is not just a message for the Jewish people. This is a message for people from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. Everyone who walks this earth. Which means everyone who's here this morning. This is the job of every man, woman, boy, and girl. To seek God's justice. To learn and understand his righteous will and ways. And then to obey them. To live them out. And it's only then that we will see human life and flourishing. That's what we're called to do. But we know that the only way that that's possible is through Jesus Christ. We are in a broken world, broken by our sin. Jesus is the only one who can rescue and redeem us from our sin. He is the only source of salvation. He is the only source of renewal. And apart from him, the human race will just continue, like the Pharisees, to repeat cycles of destruction. They will continue to do what's right in their own eyes. The Pharisees walk away and they think, we've got to get rid of this guy. We've got to kill him. That's what happens when you're not thinking about things the way that God has called you to think about things. And what's so amazing about Jesus is he didn't come with a strong arm to force everyone to do it his way. His style of authority and leadership is not to trample over everyone else. He is the meek and mild Messiah. And the Jews weren't ready for him. They were looking for that conquering king. And so they missed it. They opposed him. And I want to call you today to not follow in their footsteps. Don't walk in the same path as the Pharisees. And so as, as we wrap things up, as we're landing the plane in the sermon, a few things to consider of how do I you know, apply this to my life today? First thing you could do is come to Christ and follow him. Come to Christ and follow him. Whether that's for the very first time, recognizing, holy, holy smokes, I'm a sinner. I, I can't save myself. I need Jesus. Or whether you've been a Christian for a while, but maybe you're struggling with a particular sin issue. You feel like what Connor shared earlier, like, I, I can't come back to God. He's not going to forgive me. No, he will. Come to him and choose to follow him. Second takeaway would be to yoke yourself to him and find rest for your soul. If you didn't listen to last week's sermon, I would encourage you to go back and do that. 
where Mark explains in detail of what it means to yoke yourself to Jesus, to, to literally be you know, side by side, neck and neck, in the yoke, uh, walking through life together. It doesn't mean that things will always be easy, but what it does mean is that in those trials and in those hard seasons, you're with Jesus. He's carrying the burdens. He is in the yoke with you. There's rest to be found there. Another takeaway would be to learn from him to be gentle and merciful. So as you're in the yoke with Jesus, you get to look and, and learn, here's how, how I ought to live. Here's how I ought to conduct myself. And Jesus' example is, again, of, of gentleness and of doing good to others. He's showing compassion to those who are in need, which is what the next point is. Seek to do good to others. Don't just let this be head knowledge. Don't let this just be what you've learned, but let it be how you live. Right? Allow the, the, the lordship of Christ to change your life and devote yourself to doing good to others. And then lastly, how about this? Study the word so that you know his righteous will and ways and can do justice in the land. But the only way you're going to know how to function according to God's design is if you open up his word and learn, this is how I function according to God's design. So I want to encourage you to be men and women of the word. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's what it looks like to submit to his authority. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word uh, this morning. Thank you for Matthew chapter 12. Thank you that we get to observe your interactions with the Pharisees and, and see and hear your claims to be the greatest authority. And we just pray, Lord, that right now as we're processing through all of this, that our response would be to submit to your authority, to admit that, that we don't have it all figured out. And Lord, that we are a broken people in a broken world, and we need you. Thank you for coming for us. Thank you for making a way for us to be rescued and redeemed. Help us not to follow in the path of the Pharisees. Help us not to think that we know better. Help us to be humble and teachable. Help us to learn from you. May we be yoked to you. May we rest in you, Lord. And may we devote our lives to doing good to others. Thank you for your example in this text. Thank you for the privilege of studying it this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and worship our great God.